Uh, I want to kind of roll you through a town called Sardis real quick and then kind of give you a little bit of a story of my life. Uh, I don't have a clicker, so I'll just kind of do it. But Sardis is the next church in this series we're doing on the seven letters to the seven churches. And so if you remember, it's the book of Revelation. John is on the island of Patmos. And he writes a very apocalyptic, prophetic letter that's to a real audience and, and addresses it to these churches. And then specifically, Jesus has him write uh, some prophetic words to those congregations. And so then this letter will go out in some sense by like a circuit rider. Uh, and we're kind of going around this loop. So if you look at the map, you'll see where Sardis is. Uh, so we're kind of halfway around the loop now as we're going through these churches. Sardis is an interesting town. It's a, it's a very ancient town. Uh, it had a real high, has a real high, uh, steep-pitched kind of hill that had an acropolis on it in ancient times. It was very fortified. And then uh, as kind of the area grew in wealth and in, in sense of security, the bigger town kind of was put down uh, by the river on, on kind of the valley floor. It's where the whole golden fleece comes from and, and some of uh, Homer's writings. This idea of, of it's where Midas supposedly lost his uh, Midas touch. But there was gold kind of in this river that flowed through there. And it was a really important city. It's an important city for Greeks, Romans, and then also Jews. The, the word diaspora or uh, diaspora, which means kind of scattering, there's a couple of those in the history of the Jews, and it begins in the Old Testament. And so when, when God saw fit to discipline the nation of Israel and basically bring invaders in, and they were kind of taken off to captivity, it, it was the first uh, of what we would call the, the a diaspora, which is the scattering of the Jewish people. And this is an ancient kind of place where there was a Jewish congregation that would have been kind of um, from that time. It's also, if you watch the movie like uh, 300 or study any of the history of the battles with Persia and Greece, uh, Sardis was kind of the headquarters for the, the Persian army when they were coming and trying to wage war against Greece. A um, couple pictures just to give you context. Uh, this is kind of... It's fascinating, by the way. I mean, these are shops. So as you kind of go down, uh, almost like an agora, the, the marketplace area, the way into the city, so that would be kind of right where you're standing or kind of uh, path right along that channel. And you'd have these shops just one after another. It's amazing when you go back 2,000 years how similar Western culture is to, to our Western culture. I mean, we really, in a lot of ways, were, were birthed out of... Uh, the Greek and then the Roman world. So this would have been shops. Go to the next picture. This is a fascinating city. There was an earthquake that knocked over some of the buildings. And so then dirt eventually comes and covers it up. And a lot of these in the last decade, a uh, couple decades have been uh, unearthed and excavated. And it's fascinating, uh, the level of detail. Uh, headstone near the gymnasium. I think we have a picture of the gymnasium that they've kind of reconstructed. So this is kind of a, a Greek gymnasium and then bathhouse. Uh, and, and so they reconstructed kind of the top layers and that kind of a thing. Another picture uh, from the other side. And then another picture. This is uh, inside the synagogue, actually, of a really uh, large Jewish kind of congregation that would have met there. And so there would have been an altar and, and places for teaching there. And if you can see it, un unbelievable mosaics that still exist uh, in, the, in the ground. And so as they kind of uncover it and then they cover it with plastic, you know, sometimes during the wet season. But there's these unbelievably detailed, beautiful mosaics all throughout the city of Sardis. And I think that might be the last picture, is it? I'm guessing it is. Um, so you have this important city of Sardis where you have kind of a multicultural thing going on. And the letter to this church is haunting to me because it hits really close. So what I want to do before we get to the text is just back up and tell you a little bit about um, my testimony. Because this, this hits right in on that. So when I was at Clemson University, I'm 22 years old. 
uh, had a crazy life change experience. Crazy life change experience. And uh, I had a doctor tell me that I was going to die in my 20s. And, and it was, had a lot of crazy things going on because of the lifestyle I was living. And, and I began to read the book of John and a book on Christianity with this kind of thing telling my mom, send me a book that says why I should believe in Christianity. And I said, I'm going to read these. And really, literally, what was going on in my mind was this. If there's not a God, then it doesn't matter if I die in my 20s. It's kind of better to burn out than to fade away. Uh, which was, frankly, the line that Kurt Cobain used when he committed suicide. And it's a Bob Dylan song, right? And I remember, you know, Kurt Cobain generation, I, I remember going, you know, there's some truth to that. It's better to burn out than to fade away. And if there's no God, what does it really matter? But if there is a God, well, then the logical implication is I'm not my own. Like, I, I don't belong to me. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a study. I was an engineering student. I was doing a co-op at the time, so I was like on a work-study program, which meant I came home in this little hick town of uh, South Carolina every night and would cook for myself and just had a lot of time. So began to really pursue this and, and for months was wrestling. And then the crazy thing for me is one night, it wasn't thinking about whether God exists. It was all of a sudden as if God was there and it was, was kind of like, well, hi, hi, I guess that settles it. You know, it was really, it was just a really trippy thing, you know, and so it was like, oh, whoa, and, and, uh, and so that changed the whole nature of the conversation, and within a couple weeks, one crazy experience after the other, it was like, uh, okay, my life is yours, God, and, and then it was, you know, it was like a road to Damascus kind of thing, uh, this one particular evening where I had this, picture of um, God's call on my life, you know, and all these doors open, and you're supposed to this and that, and, and so I went home, and I knew a guy that was a Youth for Christ leader from back in high school, hadn't, hadn't seen him in, a, you know, I don't know, decade, whatever, tracked down an email address, and I sent him this big, long letter. I, I still, I found it like a couple years ago. I didn't realize I still had it. Sent him this big, long letter about this crazy, wild experience I'd had that night where I felt like I was called into ministry, and, and I don't know what to do. I guess I'm supposed to go to Africa. You know, I mean, that's everyone's thing, right? The naive thing, like, if God were to call me, I guess I'd have to go, you know, and so we kind of always start there. But I don't know if I want to go to Africa, you know, and, but I guess I got to go to Africa. And so I kind of like was emailing him, what do I do? And through a long series of uh, events, that led me to going and, and applying to this Christian summer camp. And I think I've told this you know, these stories before I get there, and boy, I don't know anything, and the, 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 the funniest symbol of that was the, the day I get there, some guy's coming out of the bookstore, and, and he'd gotten a, book, a Bible on clearance because they had accidentally ordered uh, a Bible with the Apocrypha. If you know what the Apocrypha are, they're the, the books in the middle of the Bible that the Protestant church doesn't really recognize as, as being scripture or authority, you know, and, and, uh, and so this person came out because they had accidentally ordered the wrong you know, Bible at this Baptist camp or whatever, and, and uh, comes out, and I saw it, and, and I literally freaked out, and I was like, there's more books, I had no idea, like, where, where, you know, and I was literally freaking out the whole day, trying to figure out where I get the extra books of the Bible, I didn't know anything, they shouldn't have hired me, but by the end of that summer, um, I mean, that summer was revolutionary in my life, and it everything began to change. And so I started making a V-line towards grad school and seminary uh, coming off that summer. And in that whole next year and two years at Clemson finishing up, this is where it becomes relevant. I was so, I started off idealizing Christians. I went to this Christian group and I'm like, there's these Christians, and they've been Christians their whole lives. I, I didn't know they made people like that. Like, it's unbelievable. And I'm like, these people are unreal. And I, like, put them on this pedestal. And, and then, like, a couple months later, I was like, these people suck. Like, they're lousy people. And then, like, three months after that, I was like, they need me to, like, teach them about God, you know? And then, like, three months after that, I was, like, leading all the Bible studies. And, and so it's like, if you're a new Christian, um, congratulations. You literally could be leading everybody else in 
no time flat, you know, and, and, but it was a weird set of circumstances to find myself realizing how zealous I was. I mean, I read the Bible, I think, about three times through in one year, like start to finish. I mean, just, I, I was all in, and, and I was around these Christians, and I was like, there's just, I, a lot of them, for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of them, it, I couldn't figure out because they're, they're kind of good and they wear the right jewelry and they call them, they know all the words, but there was something that just wasn't jiving. I was just really thrown off by it. And I began to figure out what I have always since then held is that there's something really subtle that happened in American Christianity with the advent of revivalism. And I don't, I don't blame it on any one person. I think sometimes you get these trends that happen over a generation or two, and, and, and it's small little tweaks that over time you put them together and you, you're not even, you've got apples and oranges. And what began to happen in American culture is this form of kind of consumerism with regards to salvation. And, and what I would call cheap grace. And it was this idea, we, we kind of so boiled down salvation and the good news that it was, it was, it became just, and if you grew up this way, you know what I'm talking about. It became some youth pastor just telling you, bow your head, repeat these words after me, and voila, the magic happened and you're now saved. And by the way, since you're now saved, um, the Christian belief is once saved, always saved, you're good. You're good. Um, it doesn't matter how much you sin from here on out, you're, you're good. You belong to God and you're his. And, and then culturally what begins to happen with that kind of what's been called easy believism is that it's just this kind of weird rote way of, of kind of doing the gymnastics and then slapping the, Dallas Willard would call it the barcode on our forehead, you know, like, yep, saved, you know, like, um, and, and, then, and then we kind of get this, what, what, you know, other people have called evacuation theology, which is just, um, someday God's going to come and evacuate us all. Until then, it, nothing really matters because this, this whole thing is going to burn. It's all going to burn. It, don't bother uh, doing anything, worrying about it, caring about it, because it's all lost, and, and we're just waiting to get kind of sucked out, you know, evacuation theology. And there's some crazy subtle things that were going on. I, I watched it at the Christian camp I worked at. I watched it other places, and I really began to go, there's something so weird about this that doesn't ring true, and, and I had experienced it when I was a kid, and as I'm reading the Bible, and I'm reading the Gospels, I finally just galvanized in this almost bitter rage, frustration, anger. And I finally began to say, what's being preached by the youth pastors, and I don't mean to pick just on youth pastors, but the camp leaders, the easy believism, whatever it is, what's being preached there sounds a lot different than, than Jesus' words. It looks a lot different than Jesus' words. And, and at, the, at the core of it, it seems to cost a lot less than what Jesus was saying a relationship with him and salvation costs. And, and I began to go, how is, how is what we're saying to all these Christian young people sound so different? And then I, I, my, you know, I had a couple answers. One, because we weren't preaching the Gospels. And people weren't reading the Gospels. It doesn't take long of reading the Gospels before it, it really sorts you out, Right? Um, so it's like we're not getting into Scripture, so we're just taking however somebody's articulating it or packaging it as if that's kind of the thing. Uh, secondly, we're bringing kind of our American dream vibe into it. That faith in becoming a Christian is all about one step to a better life. Now, I think God promises us fullness of life. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Okay? But the very first thing that kind of comes with salvation is dying to your selfish desires and saying, I'm going to live in Christ, literally 
en Christos, the, the phrase all throughout the New Testament. I'm literally going to be in Christ, and I'm going to be now a citizen of heaven, not really of this world, and my mind's going to be on heavenly things, not on earthly things. I'm going to take my, my cues from him about what he desires in terms of the kingdom, not from what I just want, wish, or desire in terms of just being your average American or whatever. And, and we be, I think we had begun to sell salvation like we, like we sell other things. And we had missed the whole, this isn't just one more thing I add to myself. This is the thing that comes in and makes everything else die and grows in its place. Does that make sense? And then second, uh, thirdly, we, we had lost the historical understanding of what was meant by the perseverance of the saints or this idea of once saved, always saved. Uh, and we, we had begun to throw it around just very flippantly. And it wasn't if you're saved, uh, Christ will not let go of you and he'll hold on to you. It was if you've prayed a prayer, then you're guaranteed salvation. And Jesus says, man, you're not going to know who's really saved by, by, by what people profess. And he even told his disciples, they're like, don't try and figure it out because you're going to get it wrong. And then he says, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, a whole lot of people that have done miracles in my name, even cast out demons in my name, are going to come to me. And I'm going to say, yeah, I, I don't know you. I don't know. Yeah, sure you tapped into the power or sure you whatever, but I don't know you. You know, that's some fascinating like stuff going on with that implications in the old testament there was this idea of the elect that not the direct phrase not all israel is israel what's meant by that not everyone in this ethnic group that wears the right jewelry and uses the right words is truly in their hearts a, a person who belongs to god as a child of god and not all israel is is truly israel and in the new testament you get that same kind of idea that that there's those that identify with Christ, but there's a smaller group that are those who actually have a relationship with Christ. And so we took all the fear or accountability out of salvation when we made it so kind of cookie cutter conveyor belt that just whisper these words in your mind or whatever, and then you're guaranteed because I can promise you that you're guaranteed kind of salvation. And, and, and it just became very... I don't know, what would you call that? And so we lost this kind of uh, weightiness. So I want to just read a little bit to you from the Gospels. Here's John 14. This is a fascinating uh, passage because he talks about how you actually know that you're part of having a relationship with him and God because of the Holy Spirit. So this is John 14, starting with verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, it neither sees him or nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me, because I, live, uh, because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then it goes on. And in verse 23, that says this, if anyone, Jesus replies, if anyone loves me, he or she will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. You see, there's a really complex debate that got way oversimplified when we began to cheapen grace in this kind of easy believism. And it's the idea of works or righteousness or obedience. Everybody knows that God wants you to be good. Everyone gets that there's commandments in the Bible. You don't even have to open the Bible once to know there's something called the Ten Commandments. 
everyone gets that there, there are commands. Um, so we all kind of have that sitting there. Now, what happens is in easy believism is that we begin to say, like Paul says in Romans, it's not by works that we're saved, like we're earning salvation. It's by faith in him and his grace in us. And then we kind of draw this distinction and then say, therefore, works have no part in it. Do you see that extra little step? And then we say, it's just, it's, it's just this. It's just me praying a prayer. Hey, that's a pretty cool offer. You mean like I can just say these words and then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. And once good, always good. Like, and I could, I could do whatever I want from here on. And I'm like Teflon, it doesn't stick. Like, yeah, that's kind of, why wouldn't I take that? And you mean I get to go to heaven when the mothership comes and beams us all up? Like, well, why wouldn't I? What does it cost? Well, nothing. Well, shoot, I'm not stupid. I'm, I mean, I might as well say those words. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like, it begins to be divorced. Now, the thought here is, if we're going to talk about obedience now, oh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna land back over here on this extreme that says, um, somehow righteousness and obedience and goodness, if you're, if you're telling people there's an oughtness, there's a must to it, that, that in doing so, you're going to lead them to believe that that's how they earn God's relationship, that that's how they somehow uh, work their way to heaven, this, you know, the stairway to heaven kind of thing. And, and, and that's going to uh, take away from the gospel of grace because now we're going to introduce these 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 things of self. Does that make sense? And we kind of set these things against one another. And what I want to say is when we understand the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, the way Jesus talks about it in the, in the gospels, that that good news about, you know, what's the middle word in sin? Middle letter. I just heard this actually. It's a fun little game. The, the, the le middle letter in the word sin. In the middle letter in the word pride. And it ends there. I don't have any more. But that's, that's like, that's going to go out. And you mean I'm going to be forgiven, made new, uh, and sealed by the Holy Spirit who's a personal being that I can have a relationship with that comes into my life and begins to regenerate me so that my inability to want to do the things of God or even to be able to do the things of God is replaced by the ability to match my, my, my wishes that I would be like him and that begins to bear this fruit in my life of righteousness that, that this whole kind of gospel and that I don't need to look at the world anymore and go, I have to be successful by your standards. I don't need to be successful by your standards. Like I'm anchored somewhere else and that full gospel, when we begin to realize when that whole thing comes together, we can't separate out the fruit from the roots. You know, I mean, Jesus even said that. You're going to know a good tree by its what? Its fruit. Well, if I, if I go to you and say, well, you know, let me, what kind of fruit is in your life? Am I all of a sudden implying that there's no God in you because you're doing everything on, on your own selfish imperative to earn God's Love? Not necessarily, right? I mean, sure, you could miss the gospel and you could still try and be like in the Old Testament where you're earning God's love. But if I go to your life, where's that fruit in your life? It doesn't mean I'm implying that you're earning your way to heaven. I'm looking for the logical thing that goes with having the Holy Spirit in your life and being reborn into his likeness. I'm just, I'm looking for what naturally is attached to that because the fruit comes from the root. So Jesus says, you're going to know whether, whether they're the right kind of um, person that you should follow, not by if they wear the right jewelry, but by their fruit. He, he says, you know, so he says, so look for that. And, and uh, you know, and you, you kind of begin to go, what does that really mean? And then he says, and you know, people are going to be looking at you because you're my witnesses. And you know what? They're going to know that you're authentic. How are they going to know you're authentic? 
because you got the barcode on your forehead. No, because your love for one another, because that kind of love can only come about and be sustained over time. That selfless kind of love in my name can only come and, and really be sustained when the Holy Spirit is working in your midst. And that's going to be a testimony, and they're going to know that you're my disciples by that, that, that working in obedience and the fruit that comes from it as you act in this world according to my desires and live out the kingdom. It's, it's, see, it's all kind of turned in on itself. And so then you get to this crazy book, crazy book. You should go home and read it. And as you're reading it, go, man, this is crazy. It's, it's a crazy book, First John. It's a crazy book. But listen to how crazy. I'll just read just, I mean, read the whole thing. And then you'll have to take a shower. You'll feel just so, ah, and then you'll realize that taking a shower doesn't get that kind of dirt off, and then you'll pray a lot, and it'll be a really healthy kind of experience. Um, that wasn't in my notes. I'll, I'll scratch it for the second service. That was odd. Um, but here's, here's 1 John. I mean, read with me. We'll start in uh, 1 John 1.5. This is the message you have heard from him, and, de and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to know him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Implication of we lie means there's going to be some people that claim to know him, yet walk in darkness, and they're lying. This is anticipating that that's a part of reality. Not all Israel is Israel. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, truly does purify us from all sin, salvation. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's the grace part. We, we do have sin, and it is confessing it and receiving forgiveness that cleanses it. And then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out, him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now beginning in chapter 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Salvation by grace again. Now here's verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The verification principle, if you will. We, we're, we can spot the fruit, we know we have the right root. We, we, you know, there's, we can see that we've come to really know him because there's something that's working in us and we're obeying his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, again, is a liar and the truth is not in him or her. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. How do we know that we are in Christ? Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the right, in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. We could go over to chapter 3 and talk about love. We could go to chapter 4 and talk about love. Chapter 4, verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us. Relationship with Christ, being one in a relationship with, with God, reconciled to the Father. We know that we live in him and, and he in us because he has given us a spirit. And if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God, and we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. 
And then it goes on. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given this, this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point here of saying, the, the, when you read Jesus, it, it can at times scare you. Jesus can be a scary dude. Why can Jesus be a scary dude? Because Jesus was a serious dude. He was serious about the holiness of God, the reality of sin, and what was offered by way of the gospel and this, this, this um, ability to be forgiven sins and enter into this life and sharing in the holiness of God. He was a, a scary dude because he was a serious dude. And when we read him, we begin to go, the guy was serious and he talked serious. And we begin to go, so where am I with relation to that? It's the logical question. So that's some pretty serious stuff. Where am I? Now, if we're listening to the American kind of preacher, uh, I, well, I, I prayed a prayer once in my life. I'm good. Did you hear that at all in 1 John? For reading the New Testament, it's like, okay, well, where am I with you, Lord? And do you really, do I know you? Do you really know me? Is, what, what's going on? And, and I read this and I'm like, everything about my life's different. I got saved and, you know, last week I made the mistake of telling you I used to try to make girls cry on Friday nights for fun because I was bored at school, you know, and it's like, that, I, I don't do that anymore. It's all different. I, I, my life changed my orientation, like, to, to the value of other people changed, and my willingness to sacrifice or, or meet their needs or to give of myself to them, because love is about sacrifice. We measure lust in terms of desire. We measure love, true love, biblical love, in terms of sacrifice. And this new command that I would love others, it's, see, it's, I can see that. I know those decisions I made. I mean, I, I thought every one of them through, and there was that impulse of, of self-protection and, and defending myself and, and making it safe, that where my bank account was safe and that I had a, my escape plans and, and everything. There's buffers, and, and I, I, I made those decisions in those moments to go, I could do that or I could do um, something else. And I, I felt the Spirit of Christ in me say, something else because you live by faith not by having it all packaged out and trust me give your life away and I'll walk with you and I'll take care of you and even if I call you to be a martyr better you die for me than you push me away and live for self like I I know that everything's changed I can look at it and I say I I, I talk to God every night. I, I, I have a relationship. So how do I know that I'm saved? That's how. And listen to this fascinating phrase that we see in a lot of places, frankly, in the New Testament. It says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And again, that love is being driven by the outworking of the gospel in me. But whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. Here's the realization I had when I was reading through the Bible over and over and over again. Assurance of salvation in the New Testament. Like with uh, John, the, the great Puritans, Jonathan Edwards back in his day and others. Assurance of salvation was something fixed objectively, meaning once saved, always saved. But a degreed property subjectively. Let me say that again. 
The doctrine of assurance or the perseverance of saints is a doctrine that is objectively uh, 100%. If you are saved, you will always be saved. Am I one of those people that's saved that will always be saved subjectively? What, what, what's my experience or ability to kind of feel it or know it subjectively? That's a degreed property. And to the degree that, that, that I am walking in love and, and enjoying this fellowship, I can, I can say I have confidence in my security and in my salvation because I know my Savior. I walk with my Savior. I listen to my Savior. Uh, he comforts me. And he directs me and I follow. I, I know the voice of my shepherd. You see what I'm saying? If I'm going and living a life of sin because 20 years ago I prayed some prayer and that was good enough and I'm just, I'm living as if there is no God and I look at you and I say, how do you know subjectively that what is objectively true about um, so not all Israel is Israel. The, the elect, what, what is true about the people that are in God's hand, how, how do you know that you're really there and that you're not just wearing the jewelry? And you know what the, what the experience is going to be, what the response is going to be? Fear. Uh-oh. I, I kind of don't want to uh, think about that question. And I don't know that I want to read the Gospels because... Um, Jesus is a serious dude, which makes him a scary dude, and I, um, I'm a little bit afraid because there really is no evidence of a relationship in my life. There is no fruit that would come from something being living. Uh, we are the branches. He's the vine. If we are in him, we will bear much fruit. Uh, it's a little bit awkward, and I certainly don't want to read 1 John because, man, that'll mess me all up. If I read 1 John, or Hebrews, or Peter, or the New Testament, and, and all of a sudden it's like, um, uh, I can either just go, but my youth pastor told me, and cling to that, and I've seen this. I mean, I've seen it so many times, it breaks my heart. But the preacher said, well, the preacher's words were only valid to the degree that they accurately reflected the reality of, of this gospel, the fullness of the gospel, that you would be brought into this kingdom and, and be with God, with Christ, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and, and making you like. I mean, the preacher's words are only valid insofar as they reflect the truth of Scripture. But so you can go, but the preacher said, or you can go, um, you're right. Me kind of responding to that, that evangelistic message was really just all about me and just slapping another sticker onto my life that, that why not have one more NASCAR sticker? And it, it really wasn't true repentance. And Jesus says if you confess and if you believe, you know, it really didn't go down to the core of who I, it really wasn't down there. It was, it, oh man, you know. But so that's where, like in the first great awakening and all this, these guys would write and they'd be like, man, I want to know that I'm saved. I'm not, I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. I'm trying to push and lean hard into God so that I can feel his embrace and his touch, so that I, I get a sense of his presence and that I know he's right there. I want to lean so hard into him that, that I have confidence that I'm not kind of in this weird, like, sitting on the fence stage and, you know, um, who knows which way I'll fall. Uh, I don't know if I'm really in, really out, but hey, it's kind of fun. I get a little bit of both worlds, you know. I mean, I don't, I, you know, those Puritans, man, they were like, no, I want, I want to drive hard into it. And I want it to well up, and I, I want to experience it. And, and so um, I was talking with a friend yesterday, and I had recommended to her that she read John Piper, this book, Desiring God, which will change your life if you read it. And there's a a chapter on suffering, and listen to what Piper says. He's, uh, he says this, when Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, he does not mean let us become, let, let us all become lechers. 
He means there is a normal, simple, comfortable, ordinary life of human delights that we may enjoy with no troubling thoughts of heaven or of hell or sin or holiness or God if there is no resurrection from the dead. This is 1 Corinthians 15. We said if there's no resurrection from the dead, we might as well be pitied because our, our lives as Christians are so self-effacing, right? And what stunned me about this train of thought is that many of the professing Christians seem to aim at just this, this basic life of human delights uh, with no troubling thoughts of heaven, hell, sin, holiness, or God. What troubled me is that many of the professing Christians seem to aim at just this and call it Christianity. Paul did not see his relation to Christ as the key to maximizing his physical comforts and pleasures in this life. No, Paul's relation to Christ was a call to choose suffering, a suffering that was beyond what would make atheism meaningful or beautiful or heroic. It was a suffering that would have been utterly foolish and pitiable to choose if there is no resurrection into the joyful presence of Christ. And then he goes on, he says, this was the thing I finally saw in pondering this story about an abbot. In Paul's radically different viewpoint, I saw an almost unbelievable indictment of Western Christianity. Am I overstating this? Judge for yourself. How many Christians do you know who could say, the lifestyle I have chosen as a Christian would be utterly foolish and pitiable if there is no resurrection? How many Christians are there who could say, the suffering I have freely chosen and embraced for Christ would be a pitiable life if there is no resurrection? And I, I look at this idea of coming to know I'm in Christ by, by the change and the obedience, that word over and over and over again, obedience and this command to love and my relation to that as I, as I act and I work in this life. And, and it's, so it's when we kind of get that out that we come to, to Revelation here. And I just want to read this and say, this, this has relevance to us. So when we turn to Revelation 3 and we get this letter to the church at Sardis, it says to the angel of the church at Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, uh, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he doesn't, he doesn't mince words at all. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your deeds. You wear the right jewelry, but you don't know me. I know your deeds that, that you're supposed to be a part of Israel, but yet you're not true Israel. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. That's some serious talk. Serious talk is scary talk. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Roman parades when they were celebrating, people would walk in white togas or tunics. And, and there are a few people that have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy and he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Objective. But will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, uh... This letter is a, a strong letter. It's a warning letter. It's, it's, a, it's a rebuke letter. It doesn't preach well to Americans. And I, when I say Americans, I mean me too. It doesn't, we don't, 
the whole 90s was, was a, about building churches on this principle of like attracts like. So let's get everybody here that's kind of like each other because then we'll attract more people like this and we'll grow. The more diverse we get, the more cumbersome it becomes. You get in a small group and you're like, man, so-and-so is weird. It'd be a lot better if they were all cool like me. You know, and, and so we began to segment churches so that everyone was like everyone, like attracts like. And everyone loves a, a Disney story. Everyone loves to be inspired. Everyone loves to be encouraged. And, and so we're going to make everything feel good because your life is going to get better if you would just listen to my preaching. And so that was the Christianity when we started Antioch. We're like, man, we're not going to do that to people because it doesn't matter what the preacher says if it's not true. And so the very first sermon ever preached at Antioch, does anyone remember what the title was? Anybody? Come and die. Fred Kent, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Fred was our worst, uh, our, our worst, first, worst, <laughs> I'll just, <laughs> my lips are dry and words are coming out funny. Uh, Fred was our first worship pastor at Antioch. Um, and we started, and it was like, here you, inv we, we invited all these people into church. And we're, we're going to talk to all these people who don't even really know us. And we're going to start this thing called Antioch. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, what do you say? You're supposed to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what you're supposed to say. And, and we preached a sermon called Come and Die. And the whole thing was, man, we're not going to start this thing by obscuring the seriousness of God's holiness or Jesus' words or this, this beautiful, weighty offer of salvation and glory. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote this thing called The Weight of Glory, this whole sermon. And... What I began to realize was in the Bible, we'll see if this will draw, but in the Bible, it, it would all, this was God's growth curve for things. It's like a sawtooth. God's movement always grows like this. And, and so the growth um, is this weird kind of curve with all these um, kind of pruning segments. So God brings out the Israelites. Next thing you know, there's like a hundred thousand of them being lopped off. And God's saying to them, what, do you think it's because you're so big, like so numerous that I care about you? Like, I don't, I don't love you, or I don't care about you, or I'm not, this, it's not my focus because you're so many. That's not what draws me to you. I care about hearts. I care about fidelity. I care about faith. And so God would always kind of prune. So you get to John 6. In John 6, Jesus has all these people. And it's like, man, we should start a church here. This thing could be a mega church. Literally within weeks, we could get a really big building going. You know? And, and, and I mean, Jesus had it all. He had a movement going. You know how much money marketers pay to get movements going? And Jesus got this big movement. And then he says all this crazy stuff, which is where he preached the come and die sermon. And he says all this weird stuff. And they're all like, dude, you're not only are you serious and scary, but you're weird. And they all left. He was talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. And he was saying, I'm the manna sent down from heaven. I'm the nourishment that God has provided for you. And everybody bails out. And, and what we begin to see is God doesn't care about quantity, but maybe quality. He doesn't care about numbers. He cares about hearts. And so here's the, the growth curve of a successful church in America right? It, the idea of success in America for anything is sustained, continual, exponential growth. And, um, and that means you've got to be real careful not to offend people or to come off too serious or to be a downer or to call them to repent. But yet, Jesus... God um, say, no, size doesn't matter. We don't care about growth. We don't care about J-curves and exponential anything. Um, we really care about people. 
And we don't want to pretend that they're okay when they're not. And so when they're not okay, we say it. And so Jesus, again, I'm going to close on this, but Jesus, again, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the one in authority, the one over the church, the Lord of all, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. We have this reputation of being evangelicals in America. And then we look at these statistics about how it's shrinking at like a you know, ridiculous amount per year. And we're like, I, I don't know, but I don't understand. And the reason is because at the center of the thing, there's no drive engine that's real or alive. And we've, we've let ourselves begin to count the thing by the external circle and the labels and the stickers and the jewelry. I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Antioch, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. We certainly don't earn grace. That's the whole idea of grace. It's unmerited favor. It's grace. But when we have a, a relationship with Christ and we accept a, a, this kind of offer to be reborn, that weird phrase, born again, it is so wrapped up and mixed up with, with faith and action that to try to set the two and then pit them against each other is really foreign to the whole concept of this organic kingdom life in relationship with Christ, in relationship with God, knowing the fellowship of the Spirit. And we begin to understand that when we, when we really get it, our life is a lot like the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation means Jesus took on flesh and bones. And so the real thing going on here and the real relation there was channeled into the relationships and the actions and the decisions here. And he was obedient, obedient all the way unto death. And we, we become the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet. We take direction from the head. And so to try and separate these things is a crazy thing. I want to know that I know my Savior and my Savior knows me. I would want all of us in this church to want to know and to have confidence in that knowledge that yes, um, we do know Jesus and Jesus knows us. And so these words today are with the hope that at this church, hopefully, salvation is more than just some magic words um, that gives us a fire insurance for, for when it all goes down. Does that make sense? Father, we, I don't know how much I get it right or wrong, but I pray that you would refine my words, that you would use them and that as a church, we would know you, we would know your love, and that your love would drive our love, and somehow there might be something radically, seriously, holy and different about this group of people. We pray that. We ask it in your son's name.